0: John chapter 3, I read the verses earlier today, verses 14 through 21, which close out the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. I am wanting to correct the abuse of this passage so that next Lord's Day we can just understand it the way it should be understood instead of having all those nagging thoughts or questions in our minds from things we've heard in the past. At verse 15, and this is point number four. They take the pronoun, whosoever, and that's all it is as a pronoun, and use it to teach that God did not choose in salvation because it's whoever chooses God, they think. Well, if you ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God chose you to believe on Him. Because without His redeeming grace and without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, you would not believe on Him and that is all based on His choice. We could turn to so many different places, but for me to make progress, we don't have the time to turn there. But hear me and remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The preaching of the cross was to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, the worshipers of Athens, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many mighty, not many noble have been called, but God hath chosen. Yes, yes. You're called because you're chosen and because you're called, you're regenerated into life. And so when you hear the gospel, you say that's a wonderful message and you shout amen in a service like, like a song service that we just had where we sang one of the most doctrinally dense songs in the history of the Christian church was with an everlasting love describing our eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began Amen. that God has viewed us in him since then. But that word whosoever does not change the rest of the word of God. If you flip the page to chapter five and you read it last evening, look at verse 21 and we'll see whose will is active. Of course, we could turn to many other places, but we'll not. John five twenty-one. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Who does God raise up from the dead? Whoever he chooses to. Who does the Son raise up? Whom he will. It's the will of God and of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, it says that Jesus came down from heaven. It's verse 38. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. Which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. That is the doctrine of salvation. There's no God in heaven weeping over the banister of heaven about missing or losing someone. Jesus guaranteed the salvation of every single one God gave him. They are the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching can't change goats to sheep. God makes sheep and God makes goats. And we all deserve to be goats, and we all deserve to go to hell. It's all by the grace and glory. It's by the grace of God for the glory of God. The choice is His. Much more could be said, and you know that. Number five, whosoever is used to teach that man participates in regeneration. They look at that pronoun, and it messes them up. But we have already learned... We are supposed to read every book from the front cover to the back cover, but that's especially true in the Bible because God wrote the Bible. And in John 1.13, this is the third time I know when I repeat myself, when I don't know, it's time for a change. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The will of the flesh is the will that we have before we're born again. Men are not born again by that will, making a choice. It doesn't matter how you manipulate them or how you motivate them. The choice they make while they're still in the flesh has nothing to do with regeneration, and they are not saved no matter what they say. Whosoever. They think whosoever is. you just got to make a decision for Jesus, and you can be born again when reading everything up to this point has proven that that is not the way that it takes place. God has to regenerate us first. Number six, 315 and that pronoun whosoever is used to teach that Jesus died to offer salvation. Jesus did not die to offer salvation or to make eternal life possible. Jesus died to guarantee and be the surety of eternal life for all those that God had given him. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. It's not an offer. John 315 isn't an offer. It's a statement of fact. Moses put a brass serpent on a pole. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Moses put a brass serpent on a pole. I, the Messiah, will have to go up on a pole for the purpose. That's what the word that means, opening up verse 15, explaining why the two verses come together for the purpose of guaranteeing that the believers will not perish but have everlasting life. There's nothing... There's nothing possible or probable about the fact he's going to guarantee it for everyone. Remember the terminology. See, Matthew doesn't talk about believers. Mark doesn't talk about believers. Luke doesn't talk about believers. Why does John use all this about believers? Why does it say, whosoever believeth? Because of this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may... Believe on the name of the Son of God. Does that help you understand why John has so many believeth verses? He told you why he did. Because he was only writing believers so that you would understand the book was for you and to get you to believe yet more for greater assurance. Matthew doesn't have it. Have you ever seen Matthew on Tim Tebow's eyelids? Enough said. Doesn't that settle doctrine these days? Why are you picking on Tim so much? Well, now he's playing baseball. He's trying to. There's no offer in John three fifteen. If we look at John 10, verse 28, speaking about the sheep of Jesus Christ. Uh, what about verse 15? What about verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. How many do you think he lost? John 6 said he would lose not one. Right. Verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now those are Jewish sheep. So you're cut out. We're all cut out. I hope that you'll enjoy verse 16 then. Amen. Yes. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. They're not part of the Jewish church. They weren't part of the Jewish fold. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Them also I must bring. Does that sound like a possibility or a probability to you, or a certainty? Because he was assigned to do it. Jesus was assigned to save. Look at verse 28 about the sheep. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. Do you think there's any loss between verses 28 and 29, souls that God gave to Jesus that he failed to save? No, he gave eternal life to everyone. Look at chapter 17, John 17. It was part of your preparation last night. These verses are just wonderful, and they encourage us and remind us and solidify our minds and our hearts in the true doctrine of salvation. Jesus praying just hours before he was crucified said in verse 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ had the keys of David. He could open and no man could shut. He could shut and no man could open. He had the keys of hell and of death. That's Revelation 1.19. Jesus was given authority by God to be the judge of all flesh. As to whether he gave eternal life or not, none of us deserve eternal life. The whole race should go to hell, just like the whole race of fallen angels. No one feels sorry for the devil and his angels, yet there was no Savior provided, no probability, possibility, or offer of salvation whatsoever, and no one ever sheds a tear or argues with a pastor about the devil and his angels going to hell. Why do they want to argue from John 3:15? Because they love themselves more than the devil and his angels. Right. It is self-love, self-preservation, pride and arrogancy that causes people to want the decision of salvation in their hands. I love it in the hands of a perfect, benevolent, glorious Creator God Amen. Who, who made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Amen. Proverbs sixteen four. Yes. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. How many fell through that verse? None. God gave souls to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave eternal life to those souls and this is life eternal that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Why does God save us? So that we can and will know him. We don't have to know him to get saved. We are saved to get to know him and it's a perpetual lifelong process and experience to get to know him better. In Ephesians chapter 1, they were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. In Ephesians chapter 2, they were regenerated by the Spirit of God when they were dead in trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul bowed his knee to the God and Father by whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named and prayed that the Holy Spirit would open up their understanding to know the love of Christ better till they were filled with all the fullness of God. That is the process that we're in. That's what salvation is for, is for us to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, better. We can't know God in order to be saved because the natural man receiveth no information like that whatsoever. It's all foolishness and he's a rebel against it. Number seven, verse 15, and whosoever is used to teach that many will perish for unbelief. By not not jumping onto that, pronoun, whosoever, and getting saved. But we just read enough verses that tell us that there's not a single one going to be lost that God intended to save by the work of Jesus Christ. So we move on to number eight. Whosoever is used to teach that Jesus will lose many he died for. I think we've already handled that one. Jesus isn't going to lose a single one that he died for. So we go on to number nine. To turn to 1 Corinthians chapter one, they look at the word whosoever and they think that it's all up to them if it's all up to you let's this is the way we used many of us were taught and we used to believe in a time past if it's all up to me because of the pronoun whosoever when we get to heaven who deserves to be pretty puffed up and proud and get the praise i do you do if it's depending on us. Because in that scheme, God loves all men equally. Jesus died for all the sins of all men equally. The Holy Spirit woos, or whatever term they use, draws all men equally. So if one person ends up in heaven, it's something they did. And if a person ends up in hell, it's something they didn't do since God tried the best to save those in hell as much, so the, different, the, difference, the difference maker is the sinner. So what happens? He gets the praise. He should get the praise. He's the one that made the difference. He should be puffed up in pride. He's quite a savior. Dad, will you allow me? My dad has a terrible look on his face of, what should I allow you? <laughs> I loved my paternal grandfather. He was a literal devil worshiper. You have heard before. He was regenerated and saved and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ two years before my father was born. Those are some pretty nice dots. Mm My father was born in 1930. My grandfather was delivered in 1928. He was 38 years old. They had communicated with spirits for years. Many decades later, before my paternal grandfather died in 1979, my father recorded his testimony in the last few years of his life. And I wish he could have had a chance to hear more of the truth of salvation. Because in that testimony, he said, I can't wait to get to heaven to meet the man who gave me a tract in the Cory, Pennsylvania train station. And thank him for getting me there. When my grandfather read a tract about the Lord Jesus Christ, and believed on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, it was because he was already born again in possession of eternal life, and that man was just bringing a few things to light to his mind. The Bible says in Second Timothy 1, 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring life and immortality. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. And that's all my father got from a man in the Cory, Pennsylvania train station was having some things brought to light. But when he died in July of 1979, and he met the Lord Jesus Christ, I know what he wasn't looking for, yeah. and that was the man that handed him a track. Right. He was looking for the man whose arms were outstretched and nails held him on a Roman cross, Amen. because salvation is all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Man would get all the glory. Mm-hmm. So here we are at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you've turned over there with me. And we've got a different issue. I've already quoted to you this, in this second surface, beginning at verse 22 through 26. The Jews want a sign, they wanted more miracles, even though Jesus and the apostles had done thousands. The Greeks wanted wisdom, they worshiped Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest of the boys with their hallucinations of Greek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, verse 23. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Greeks, verse 24. But those that are called, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference that some people love to hear about Jesus Christ and others do not? What makes the difference? God makes the difference. It's not the presentation, it's not the organ music. It's not lying to the congregation 15 times to sing just as I am 15 individual times. It's none of those things. It's all the difference that God made before they heard the gospel. But unto them which are called, already called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God... And it goes on to describe in verse 26, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things. And why did he do it this way? He's going to tell you why God saves this way. Verse 29, That no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30, But of him, who is that? That's God. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. How do we get in Christ Jesus? By the work and will of God. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God, Jesus has made all these things to us by God. He's our wisdom, he's our righteousness, he's our sanctification, he's our redemption. Do you find you in verse 30, except being the recipient of God's gracious work through Jesus Christ? But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God. God is behind it all. Christ is the Savior and the only Savior. And let's repeat it in case we missed it in verse 29. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you're presenting salvation to someone, I would recommend a document, Bible study, audio Bible study done called the seven proofs of unconditional salvation, there are seven categories of Bible verses that show eternal life has to be an unconditional gift given by God to men. The first one is total, I'm not going to go through all seven, but the first one is man's total inability and lack of desire toward God to do anything pleasing to God. And it's a whole category of Bible verses but it works up and lays levels until it gets to number 7. And do you know what number 7 is? It's the only plan of salvation that gives God all the glory. Amen. If eternal life is conditional in the least way, we get glory because then we're the deciding factor, we're the difference maker, we're the Savior, instead of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right. Number 10 tries to tell us, they take the word believeth in verse 15, We're back to John chapter 3 and verse 15 that whosoever believeth, they try to take the word believeth and make faith a condition, not an evidence. But belief in Jesus Christ is the evidence of regeneration. Look at chapter 1. Before I quote it for the fourth time, why don't we look at verse 12? John 1 12. How many in here have memorized this verse as a child? But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. They all wanted us to memorize John 1.12, but do you know what they didn't want you to memorize? The rest of the sentence. John 1.12 isn't a sentence. It's only the first half of a sentence, and the second half tells us how we became born again. Right. Verse 12 ends with a present tense verb, them that believe on his name, which were born, a past tense operation of being born again, took place before we believed. So by the time they get to John 3.15, and they're trying to make the word believeth, something we've got to do in order to be saved, they've already read over verses that have told us, if you believe, you were saved previously. Right. Because remember, John 3.15 is only stating a fact from Jesus to Nicodemus, the Messiah that you thought was going to come and deliver you from the Roman Empire and ride around on a white stallion, that Messiah is going to have to hang on a pole between heaven and earth and lay down his life to guarantee the eternal life, and not a single one will perish of God's elect, those given to him by his Father. John 1, 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so if we've read in order, and we're studying in order, our expository study of the Gospel of John, we come to John 3.15, and we know that they're wrong in their order. And we could turn to so many different places. First John is filled with evidence that when a person believes, they're already born again. Let's go to number 11. 315 is used to teach vague salvation, confounding regeneration. We've said enough. Let's go to number 12. Verse 15 is used for the word believeth to teach a moment of faith saves forever. Unbelievable. This is staggering. That to think that a momentary decision settles your eternal destiny forever. They don't even know what the life of faith means. They don't even know what faith means. There really isn't any faith involved. It's just a little decision for Jesus. When I read about faith in the Bible, is there a chapter in the Bible about faith? Is it Hebrews 11? When I read Hebrews 11, by faith, can I read about Abel or Enoch or Abraham or Moses or any of them making a decision for God? Or does it say, by faith, Noah took 120 years and built a big boat in his backyard that was 450 feet long? Does it say things like that? That's a changed life. And those are huge works of faith. That's faith. Not these little decisions. These little people that are told to call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Right. Is that why it says in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, I never knew you that little momentary decision, that is not saving faith. James would write a whole epistle, especially chapter 2, and teach us that faith without works is dead. There's so much more to it. The Apostle Paul, did he rest, did his eternal destiny in his heart and mind rest on a decision that he made on the road to Damascus? No. He tells us what it rested on. Paul's eternal destiny. What did he look at as the evidence that he was going to go to heaven? Was it a decision for Jesus that he wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible? Was it a postcard that he had sent the Billy Graham evangelistic crusade? No, it was, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. That is evidence A little decision as a three-year-old is evidence of nothing. It's not even described, defined, nor did it ever happen in the Bible. It's a changed life that is the evidence and the real proof of faith. Look at John 14. Since you're in the Gospel of John, instead of turning you all over the New Testament, look at John 14 to remind us. Remember Romans 8, 28. I hope that this morning a different angle of looking at Romans 8 will stay with you about the love that is in there. Our love for God in verse 28 and God's love for us in 35, 37, and 39 and the myriad of blessings that are guaranteed to us by God through Jesus Christ. For that to apply to you by that passage, it's not faith. It's love. Do you love God? Do you really love God? Well, here's how Jesus defined love in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So see these little momentary decisions, these little emotional decisions, these little pressure-packed decisions of getting children to do it in Awana classes and pressing them in Bible school and all the other gimmicks that I'm quite familiar with from a day gone by. Uh, that's not salvation. It's not taught that anywhere in the Bible. I never knew you. But one brother's already been in this pulpit and read some verses. It was Brother Jim. He read from First Thessalonians chapter 1 that said, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Do you know how we're able to tell that other people in this room are elect? Do you know how you can tell that someone else is elect? Do you know how you can tell if you're elect? It gave three criteria. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4, through four, it gave three. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope is the proof of election. Hmm, where'd the little decision as a child go? Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. It's faith that works and results in a changed life. It's love that produces and does things for people, not just words, and it's hope that is so strong and precious in your life, that you can be patient. That means to cheerfully endure negative events. That is a changed person. That is all but the grace of God. Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. That's the proof of election. But they look at that word believeth in John 3.15 and think that all you got to do is make a little decision for Jesus right now, and they write your name in the book of life, and everything's settled and sealed, signed and delivered, and you can live any way you want to because once saved, always saved. I agree with once saved, always saved that extends all the way back to the foundation of the world. Do you know why? Because whosoever was foreknown, was predestinated, was called, was justified, was glorified. Amen. That's once saved, always saved. Do you know when I was once saved? Before the foundation of the world. Do you know what always saved means? To the end of eternity. You would say, when is that? I'm not sure, because my mind blows with just thinking about eternity. They look at verse 15 and see the word believeth. And it leads to a sinner's form prayer. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible, so why does anyone even consider it? Pray after me. I won't mock it this time by giving you an example of it again. Sinner's prayer, pray after me. Why didn't Jesus do that to Nicodemus? There's nothing like that there. Jesus is just laying out facts for this ruler of the Jews to show him that he did not know very much about theology or soteriology, the Doctrine of Salvation. Let me remind you right here, and I'm sorry to bring this up from time to time, but it shows how bankrupt they are theologically in the idea of a sinner's prayer. There is a raging controversy for the last 50 years or so. John MacArthur is on the Lordship side, and there's a whole lot of men against him. It's called the Lordship Controversy. The Lordship Controversy is this. When you say to the person, Get down on your knees and say this prayer after me. If you use the word Lord, if you use the word Lord, one camp of independent fundamentalist Baptists say, you're going to hell. Because you've added works by adding the Lordship of Christ, meaning I'm going to own you as the Lord of my life. That's work salvation. So they condemn anyone going to hell that in the sinner's prayer use the word Lord. Now those that believe Jesus is Lord, they say if you won't own him as Lord and to repent of your life as it exists, then you don't really understand repentance and what faith truly is, so you're all going to hell. Uh, this controversy is so neat. And do you know what it's about? It's playing games with a little rote prayer that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. But once you leave the Bible and go out there and play games with gimmicks, what's going to stop you from having something as ridiculous as the lordship controversy. Right. Mm-hmm. There is no faith without repentance. Repent, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is Lord. Right. The whole New Testament speaks of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just faith in Jesus as Savior, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and it involves totally repudiating our life that was displeasing to him. It's all wrapped up together. Acts 2.38 says, Repent! and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. But there we go. Once we start looking at a word like believeth and think that it's telling us that we need to have a sinner's prayer and the construction put on these verses is so bad, I want to undo as much of it as I can before next Sunday we just look at these things as positively as we can. John 3.16, you know, if we've got the same words in it. There's only a few new words from verse 15. John 3.16 is looked at as a mantra or a salvation soundbite that condenses the gospel. You know, you look at a football game. By the way, the NFL season started last Thursday, I believe. And so there's going to be placards trying to be snuck into NFL stadiums around the country so that when there's a camera zoom on the end zone for a touchdown, it's going to pick up John 3.16 in the end zone like it's some magical formula. And all it is is one verse out of 31,102 verses in the Bible. It's not a magical formula. Jesus passed right on over it with Nicodemus and went right on to other things. The apostles never used John 3, 16. They never quoted it in the book of Acts, nor anything like it in the book of Acts, nor anything like it in any of the epistles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke never wrote anything like it either. It was Jesus to Nicodemus explaining some things to him that he did not understand, that the whosoever was bigger than the Jews and that the Messiah had to get up on a cross and die and that salvation wasn't by circumcision or keeping Moses' law, And the only evidence you could have was believing, and that's all a person needed to do was to believe, to have the evidence of eternal life, that they are one of God's. There's no mention at all of God's love at all in the entire book of Acts. Do you realize that in the book of Acts, 28 chapters of the church history? The Acts of the Apostles. Love has has 13 forms in the English language in our New Testaments. How many are in Acts? Zero. Did the apostles know how to preach judgment? Oh, yes. On the day of Pentecost, it tells us in Acts 2.40, and with many other words did Peter testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation, because there was judgment coming. When Paul sat with Festus and reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, judgment to come, Love is not bandied about as a mantra to get people to invite Jesus into their hearts, pray a sinner's prayer, or make a little decision. Judgment is preached by the apostles of Jesus Christ so that men will repent and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Ah, I like that kind of a response. Rather than a crying child that wants the candy you offered them while you forced them through the sinner's prayer. Don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. 316 is used to identify when new names are written down in glory, but there's no new names written down in glory. They were all written there before the foundation of the world. I'm sorry that some of you sang a song growing up like I did. There's a new name written down in glory. God actually spoke to me when I was 19 years old at Bob Jones University, and convinced me that... Revelation 20 and verse 15 was the scariest verse in the Bible, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, and I realized that I had not done anything in my life that justified the God of heaven bending over to write my name in the book of life. This is just how he reasoned with me at 19. I was just being introduced to Calvinistic authors like Jonathan Edwards and uh, Arthur Pink and Lorraine Bettner and John Owen and others. And he convinced me, you know, you know you haven't done anything to get me to bend over and write your name in the book of life. But then you read the Bible and find out that my name has been there from the foundation of the world. Yes, that's a savior I can be excited about and celebrate with. That's salvation. Yes, he wrote my name in the book of life. Because I knew I hadn't done anything to get him to write my name in the book of life. Though I had sung a thousand times, there's a new name written down in glory. 3.16 is used to teach inviting sinners to come forward and get saved. Why don't we have an invitation in our services? Because there weren't any invitations in the New Testament. Why should we have one? The invitation system was invented by Charlie Finney, popularized by D.L. Moody, promoted World Without End by Billy Graham, and Jack Hiles abused it, profaned it. Have you ever heard Billy Graham say, "I want you to get up out of your seats by the hundreds and come down front. Let's get right with Jesus. Get your names in the book of life. Get saved and know that you're saved forever. You can go out from this place, get killed in a car accident, know you're going to heaven." But where is that in the New Testament? Do you know what kind of invitations we have in the New Testament? Here's Peter on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. That's his invitation. You want, the, you want a deacon's invitation. You think it's better? It's Acts chapter 7. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear. Do you know how that goes over with a Jewish audience? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear. Why do ye always resist the Holy Ghost? That was his invitation. Go read the sermon. It's 60 verses long. It'll do you good. They'd have been shouting amen all the way to the invitation. Because he gave a history of Israel. When Paul was on Mars Hill, he did the same thing to those Greek philosophers. He he said, uh, God's raised Jesus Christ, his son from the dead, to give assurance to all men that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge you. There was no offer of love. There was no sinner's prayer. There was no, no invitation. There was the almighty God in heaven who deserves our total lives given to him in submissive repentance. John 3.16 is used to teach because it's got one word that 15 doesn't have. It's got the word love, for God so loved. Okay, God so loved the world. They think that means God loved every single person that's ever been conceived from Adam and Eve to the end of the world, all miscarriages, abortives, abortions, and so forth that has ever taken place. But that isn't what the Bible teaches, and you know that that would take a couple of sermons to preach it in its entire breadth. But can we just look at Psalm 5.5 and see if that's true by by another verse in the Bible? Amen. You know, it says, for God so loved the world. The whole problem is hinging around their lack of definition for the word world. They don't know what the word world means. They've never studied the word world. It just gives them a good soundbite from John three sixteen. The word world occurs in the Bible 287 times, and I would like someone to find even one of those that means every single person ever conceived from Adam and Eve. It is a segment of mankind depending on context. And when it says, for God so loved the world, that's a segment of mankind that God loves and that he sent Jesus Christ to die for. And throughout the Gospel of John, that is those that God gave Jesus to save who are called his sheep and his children. If God loves everyone and the vast majority of them end up suffering eternal torment in hell, would you please tell me what is nice about the love of God? But if the love of God put me in Jesus Christ before he even made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and put my name in the book of life and saw me in the righteousness of Christ from then forward and loved me as a child to adopt me and give me an eternal inheritance and make me a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that is love. And that's why the Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. 1 right. John chapter 3. Not everyone's a son of God. It's a minority that's the sons of God. But they were made sons of God by God and His love for them. Psalm 5 verse 4. I want you to send me, those of you with, with uh, smartphones, if you see it in a football game or you see it anywhere, Tim or anyone else with Psalm 5.5 five on an eyelid, <laughs> send it to me. This is a verse. This is a verse. This would humble people. Yeah. But when you send them John three sixteen and let them think that they control everything themselves and God Himself is at their beck and call, let's 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 listen to these words. Psalm five four for Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Does our nation need to hear that Amen. in an end zone? For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Somebody will say about verse 5, well, hate doesn't mean hate, it just means love a little less. Well, then why does it use abhor in verse 6 as a synonym? You say, well, that's the only time it says anything like that in the Bible. No. How about turning over two pages to Psalm 11? Children, remember these verses. Especially those of you that are going to the Arminian universe of the world. Almost. I went there too. Lord, thank you for saving me. Psalm 11 and verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. Are those words good enough for our nation? The Lord is in his holy temple. My God is not bent over the banister of heaven uh, weeping for anyone. My God is in his holy temple. Is your God there? That Lord is in all capital letters because it means Jehovah. I am that I am. The Lord God Jehovah is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try, the children of men. He knows every single person. When he says, I never knew you, it doesn't mean he didn't know everything about them. It means he never loved them. Right. Verse 5, the Lord trieth the righteous, that is to chasten him in this context, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. God's soul hates the wicked. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in an horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. I never knew you. He didn't love them. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Does that mean I should love my wife and all other women as well and equally, since their God loves everyone equally? Or is Christ's love of the church separate, distinct, and unique and peculiar for the church? The Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If he doesn't chasten a person, what are they called in Bible language? Bastards. Bastards. So he chastens his sons, he doesn't chasten bastards, and chastening his sons proves his love of them. So when he doesn't chasten the bastards, it proves his hatred hatred of them. John 3.16 is used to teach the first of the four spiritual laws. (laughs) Do you know what the four spiritual laws are? Written Written, put together by Bill Bright, the head of Campus Crusade, 50 years ago I handed some of them out it was, a little, it was a little track multi-page track the four spiritual laws you were to go around handing this out to people I, I did Lord forgive me I wish I had handed out Psalm 5 Do you, Psalm 5 listen we need to be humble before the living God and repent we don't need to think that we're in the driver's seat and he's in the back seat The four spiritual laws. Supposedly the whole universe operates around four spiritual laws, the first of which is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first spiritual law. Look at Proverbs 16 and verse 4, and let's see about that wonderful plan and wonderful life. Proverbs 16, four. Why? When I say Campus Crusade, when I say Bill Bright, when I say Bob Jones University, when I say Jack Hiles, DL Moody, Charles Spurgeon, you know, whoever I say, you know, sometimes that's hard to take because those are men we've known or participated in the past in their religion, so it's, it's personal to us. But now if I was to use Roman Catholic priests or Mormons like Joe Smith, it doesn't bother you nearly as much because it's not as close to home. I just want to understand why sometimes the hackles raise on the back of your neck and you don't like hearing some things. It's because some are closer than others. You know, if I was blasting the mass as being the blasphemous thing that it is in the Catholic Church, and if I was blasting Mary worship, and if I was blasting Pope worship, and if I was blasting purgatory, see, you, would, you could get into all those things. But there are errors taken from the Bible. See, Mary worship isn't taken from the Bible. Mary worship is taken from paganism. But there are things taken from John chapter 3 that are closer to home that some of us grew up with and we heard many times and so it's hard for us to hear them. But I am asking you under the authority of God's word, not me, to humble yourself and ask, is that truly what the Bible teaches or not? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of those did, did Noah print in the 120 years he had before the rain came? Noah and his family, the eight of them, should have been positioned at the, f- the, f- the corners of that ark and been throwing those things to the people. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How about Joshua when he annihilated, exterminated, the seven nations of Canaan? Should they have sent those in with the spies? Why didn't they send soul winners instead of spies? I'm just wanting you to think. I was 19 years old when I heard a lay preacher talk about Noah's Ark. And I had the the two years earlier handed out God's four spiritual laws. And I heard a lay preacher ask, should Noah have put that on the side of the ark? Hmm. It's like the light goes off for one more segment of truth. And you thank the Lord for it. Of course he shouldn't have put that on the side of the ark. The eight people God loved were in the ark because that was the church of God at that time, 1650 years after creation. Look what Proverbs sixteen four says, the Lord hath made all things for himself. He didn't make you for you. He didn't make me for me. The Lord hath made all things for himself. You say, how far should I take that? Well, he's going to give you the example of as far as you could take yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yay, Yea, even an example of an extreme case to prove his point, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. What if God, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Romans 9, 21 and 22. God is the potter. We are the clay. I love that relationship. I want to love him more as the potter. I want to be better clay. But I'm thankful that he's made me a vessel of mercy, and you should be thankful with me and give him glory and praise. The word world means a segment of mankind depending on context. Jesus didn't die for every human being. If he had, there wouldn't be anybody in hell. Because Jesus put away all sins but the sacrifice of himself. How could anyone go to hell and still be called a liar, still be called an adulterer, a whoremonger, blasphemer, idolater if Jesus had died for all their sins? You know, I've spent, we could spend hours, and I have done it before, and it's on our website, that Jesus died for all the sins of some men, not all the sins of all men, nor some of the sins of all men, but all the sins of some men. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Jesus died for the church. Jesus died for those who were predestinated. Jesus died for his elect. He said he would save his people from their sins. He died for those chosen by the potter. He died for the children of God. The Bible says he obtained eternal redemption for us. He didn't make it possible. He obtained eternal redemption for us. That's enough said for today. John 3 is precious. Verse 3 tells us, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We would never discern or perceive Jesus Christ as being the king of a kingdom unless we've been born again. We do discern and perceive that Jesus is the king of a kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for regenerating us. We believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Therefore, we are in possession of eternal life. We were passed from death into life before we believed, and we shall be saved in the day of judgment and not be condemned. All those different phases, three different phases being brought together in John 5:24. I mentioned a Bible study done in my office in 1987 called The Seven Proofs of Unconditional Salvation. After that 60-minute study, I would recommend the five phases of salvation because it goes through how that we were saved by election and predestination before the world began. We were legally, some people call it positionally saved by Jesus at his death on the cross. Then we have to be born again during our lifetime. Sometime when we have personal existence, then we hear the gospel and obey it. That's the practical phase of salvation. And we vary all over the map from Abraham's to lots. Nothing varies in election. Nothing varies in justification, nothing varies in regeneration, but our conversion does vary. And then our glorification is the final phase of salvation and the word save is used for all five. Right. And so you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. You look at some verses and you say that word save in there, oh, that's the legal work that Jesus Christ did. And some verses of the save will be like Paul, the, the good question to ask is when was Paul saved? Well, Paul answers it five different ways in the New Testament. And you know, in one phase, he wasn't even saved. Do you know what he said in Romans 13, 11? Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Do you know what that means? He wasn't saved yet, but it calls it his salvation. So that's why we need to be careful with the word of God. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed? Yes, because, Paul, it's been 25 years since you believed, and so your salvation is getting closer but that was to be glorified in body, soul, and spirit in heaven with the Lord forever. Thank you, Lord. We love all of your word. We love John 3, and we love John 3, 16. For God so loved the world of his elect, extending to Jews and Gentiles, that he gave his only begotten Son to guarantee the eternal life of every single one of them, that not a one would perish. Amen. There isn't any offer, there isn't any probability, possibility, it's a guarantee by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said he would lose none of them. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.